Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Henrik Warren, who is currently a senior software engineer and working at Talos. Henrik joins us from Stockholm, Sweden. Henrik Warren, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yes, it's a really good question. I think the, the first thing I would say is that the code has structure in it so that you have like methods of the different parts because I, I think a, a problem over time in a lot of software is that it kind of floats out in just long sequences of, of statements, uh, longer and longer methods, and it's harder and harder to see what the steps of what we're trying to do are. So when you start, it's usually clear. I have to do this, I have to do this, and maybe that's a separate method each. And then as time goes by, p- different people add stuff, and it tends to be that they get longer and it's harder to get an overview. And I think this is a really something that's really tricky to get to because there is there isn't a clear cutoff point where you have to like refactor it and fix it. And sometimes you're under time pressures, it's hard to to motivate to try and restructure it. So I, I, I've seen that a lot that you get these long methods now, hundreds of lines long. It's hard to know, you know, are these steps how are they related and what are the the overview of what we're trying to do so yeah that's that's like the main thing i think for maintainable software i also think that that there should be tests in most of the system the tests are good in themselves to make sure the code does what it's supposed to do but if i come in as a new developer to the code base it's really good to be able to run some parts of the code so you can explore what it does. And sometimes when there are no tests, it's really, really hard to get it to a state where you can run some part of the code. So if there are tests, there there is usually like infrastructure to get so you can run them. And they've forced you to think about how to divide up the software so that it's testable. Uh, and that helps a lot too. So I, I like to... Like I, I sometimes talk about read and run. So you read the code, but you also run the code to see. It's complementary ways of finding how the code works, I think. And if there aren't any tests, it, it sometimes it's really hard to set up a test. And if the developers have gone through that and m- divided the code up so you can do that, that's, that's a huge help, I think. A- another thing, uh, I mean, there are lots of things. I'll, I'll mention one more thing that I think is important. And it's like that there is consistent naming in the in the code often surprisingly often the same concept have different names in different parts of the code maybe it's also something that drifts over time i think that's also something that needs to be kept track of and and improved uh, as as it is maintained people are often too afraid of changing names of things though you you live with a not quite right name of a method instead of renaming it so those are like three Big ones, I think. No, there's some some good good takeaways there. I think you know, just touching on the last one, 
you know, I don't know how many times I've worked on projects that have been around for a while and they come come to us with the glossary. And then you might start talking with the people on the product team and they're like, they're referring to things in a completely different language. And you're like, well, um, what is, what are you referring to? And they're like, well, I think this used to mean, and then you start to piece together this like story of like, oh, well, the original developers are gone. The original people that had written the requirements are gone. There's new people that took over jobs in both of those areas. Neither of them call anything by the same thing. And now there's like glossaries that mean the same thing across multiple teams and the code base. And it's like, well, what are we going to decide? Do the new people need to learn the old way of calling things or do we need to rename things based off of how the business talks about it today? I don't know if there's necessarily a right answer to that outside of like acknowledging that that is a conversation that probably needs to happen. And and it's hard to know if you come in as a new person and you think this this is not well named, it, it takes a while before you're comfortable to say, I know that this should be changed because sometimes you're not getting the whole picture. So it, it's hard to. So I think it falls mostly on the ones that have been there a while too. But then you get very comfortable with the old way of naming things. So, And I like what you say too, like you should be able to use the same content concepts in the code and to talk to like non-programmers about what it does. If you have the same uh, name for concepts, that's, that's really helpful. I was thinking of like a really simple example is like, does a company refer to the people that use their application as users or like, no, those are our customers. And like, why are we calling them users internally? And then, but they're customers. And like, there's always like, oh, customer X, Y, Z. And you're like, is that, what type of user is that? Because there's admin users, you know, there's other types of users. And sometimes we pre-optimize our domain model and, you know, our database naming and everything just to represent what potentially could become, you know, like, like, oh, I'll just keep this kind of generic as a best benefit for the future growth of this application, but then you're having to translate everything because of that. Yeah, exactly. And and one thing is like if you have a like a, a database table that has the slightly wrong name, it it, it would it takes often a, a lot of effort to to change that and migrations and stuff. So you're kind of living with it, which is too bad because that kind of helps to cement like the the old ways. Uh, and like you said, like uh, clients and users, maybe there is a, a good distinction that you need to have between them. So then it's a it's good that they're separate, but it's it, unless you know the application, you don't know if it's if they should be combined or if they're separate. It's an interesting thing. Sometimes we put similar data in the same table because we think, well, there's just people, but then there's a lot more complexity to that. Um, I don't want to harp on that particular example too much, but then you end up with like God objects in your code base and stuff like that. And usually it's probably something like a user model or something. Um, earlier, you had mentioned how like code will, you know, early on in a project, things will be, you know, well named or real, well structured, be easy to kind of get an overview of. And then that, you know, over time starts to drift and do you start with a lot more complexity in it as new requirements and things pop up and like, oh, these weird edge cases, right? And so when does it make sense to like, we need to take a step back and like revisit this thing because maybe they don't have the full context yet. And so they're like, well, if I know if I make this one little change here, seems to be getting the right output, but I don't want to break anything else. So I can understand why people go down that path. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a big reason why it ends up like that because when you're new, you want to make the smallest possible change and still get it right. So, I mean, I, I think you can tackle it in two ways. I think once you're, you know the code base well in the area where you're changing, I think you should change yourself, like refactoring as you touch the code uh, to things that you see are needed. But sometimes there may be a need for like a, a bigger effort. And I mean, I've I worked at places where we'll, we, we can take like 
a, a couple of days for the whole team and work on something we think is really bad. But mostly, I think it needs to be done as you as, as you touch a certain part of the code, try and fix it a little bit, like the scout rule, kind of leave it a little bit better than you found it. One of the other things you had touched on was related to it's great that we can have tests that we can run, but also to be able to like have some details on how to run the code or get the application into a certain state that where you could debug something or explore how you would add a new functionality. Like there's a lot of ways to potentially get there, but are there some good patterns you've seen teams take where that don't just require like, well, the one of the most common things I end up seeing companies do is like, well, we just get a database snapshot and then we like figure out a way to like log in as that type of user you know, obscure some things and we will try to get to the same thing that they're at, but there's, it's really difficult for them to like get into that space just from their own data set, local seeded data set or something like that, because the real world and local development environments are drastically different in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I think mostly, I think the way to tackle it, to have it broken down in, in smaller pieces so that you can set up the state for that piece. But I mean, I've seen a lot of test cases where you have to set up Basically, the whole world is like, you know, lots and lots of setup code to, to instantiate things. But I think it's a little bit the wrong way. You need to slice it up in a way so that you can affect just the local part. And then maybe you don't need to set so much state there. But then, I mean, there's always a need to test it all in a complete environment as well. And, and there, I think it can be useful to have like shortcuts to get to certain states either test tools or something so you don't have to go through so many steps to to get to a certain state. One of the things that I was really excited to speak with you about is that you recently wrote a blog post titled There is No Software Maintenance, which definitely caught my eye because I read it, I mean I have a podcast called Maintainable. So are you saying that there's no main maintenance in software projects? So what what's the distinction? Because I've been trying to argue that maintainability and software maintenance is a really important part of the software journey. What's kind of like one of your uh, your primary point in this in this article? Uh, yes. So my main point is that I think it's wrong to divide software development up into two parts. Like first you develop the software, then it goes into a main into maintenance. This is how I was taught uh, software development a long time ago when I went to university, and it seems reasonable. But I think that it's the wrong way to think about it because it's much more iterative. Like you, you do a little bit and with the change that I've seen is when, when Agile was introduced and ex, um, extreme programming, when that came about, then there's more emphasis on, on doing short iterations and you do something, you give it to the customer to try it. So I, I don't see a clear point from where it is done and now it's maintenance. I think it's all software development. And another thing that I didn't really put in the blog post, but I, I wish I had, was that in many people's mind, it seems it's better to be developing new features. And if you're only doing maintenance, it's kind of like grunt work that nobody wants to do. And I think that's wrong. I, I think it's very important to be able to troubleshoot and bug fix. And I think it's basically really important to do. And, and that happens from the first release and, and on. It, you can't say that you do it first and then the bug fixes come after. And I think you, you have to 
as a developer, you have to take the uh, responsibility for what you've done. So you have to, you can't just write a feature and hand it over to somebody and then move on to something else. That's, that's, yeah. So that's why um, I wrote this. And, and, and I mean, fine, I kind of pushed it a little bit by saying there is no maintenance. I, I know what people mean by maintenance, but I think it's the wrong way to think about it. It's all software development, mostly, is my view. And that very much resonated with me and, and a lot of around my kind of like my career arc and how my company think, thinks about how we approach projects or products. And I was, I think that was something in your article that I really appreciated was you thinking, you know, talking a little bit like what's the difference between a project and a product. And when you have a product, you know, you're going to continue working on, you know, iterating on it, you know, assuming it's on just like a physical product, you ship it and then it gets, you just send it off to get, you know, mass produced and then it gets, you know, sold in on a, on a shelf somewhere and in some store. But for like an online product, it needs to be consistently worked on, iterated on, new features. They all kind of come in, you know, in 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 parallel. You can't just like stop production on a, you know, a product necessarily. So there's this interesting thing because you know I work in the client services business, so our clients will come to us with what they think consider as a project, you know. But I'm like, well, you're really building a product to some degree, whether or not it's something you're going to charge for, if it's an internal tool. You know, we'll, we'll use other things like it's a platform. We'll try to get it like stop thinking about it as like a project. It's like marketing departments will think of things as projects, but other departments might be like, well, we're going to build this tool to allow us to do something, and we're going to need this to be supported for a while. Uh, we can't we can't really have it break. But one of the things we found early on in our in our company, like when I talked 15 plus years ago, new startups would come to us and say, hey, we want to build this thing. How much would it cost to get this thing launched? And that would be like their budget would be to get the thing launched. And then we'd always, you know, as we learned, like, well, what happens after launch? You're going to need to have more things worked on. You're going to have to react to your customers or the customers that don't show up. And you have to like pivot this product a couple times because you're not going to get it right. You may or may not be able to like sell this thing. You may go out of business. And so I'm like, what budget do you have post-launch? You know, like that's just getting to like the starting point. So the quicker we can get this out the door for you so you can test it. And that got into a lot of weird, murky territory as a client, as a consulting company, where some people were like, "Well, there's no bugs, right? Why, why did you produce bugs?" Because a lot of people don't know about the, you know, they don't, they don't understand the software development process. Like, you know, we we launched this thing, and now there's bugs. That's your fault as a developer for, you know, missing something. I'm like, well, we could have spent more time doing more testing collectively and spotted these things. And so it's like this tricky. We, we would always, you know, so just as like, if you're starting a, this is kind of out for the audience, if you're starting any sort of consulting business, just know that when you work with new products, there's always this weird expectation of like bug fixing, or you have to really under, work with people that are going to understand that there's not a warranty on the work that you're producing when it's a custom thing. And that's part of the reason why we don't work with new projects very often anymore. Because like, our my whole thing is like, call us in five years if your project becomes a product or what have you. And like when you you have you realize that you have budget to support this thing, then let's talk. We'll happy to take it off your, you know, we'll pick it up, inherit it, and continue working on it. But there's that weird murky area when you launch something of like, well, whose responsibility is it? All right, I'm going off down like a weird rabbit hole of things, just like why I'm risk adverse when it comes to working on new products, because most of those companies don't always budget for like the next six to twelve months after launching it successfully. So be that as it may. Yeah, exactly. And I think this sets the wrong expectations for people 
ordering software because if they think it's a project and it gets done and then that's it, maybe some maintenance, it's the wrong expectation. And it's, it's bad to compare it to, like software is so unique because it's so changeable. Expecting it to be like other physical things is the wrong model. So that's another reason I think why it's wrong to, to keep talking about how it's, it's a, a project and then it's maintenance. Like, uh, and I think that's what I've seen like for the past 20 years. I think the, how you do this uh, in an agile way is, is much more iterative. And, and, uh, but then it's hard if, you're, if you want to order something and you, you say, this is my budget. But if something, that, that's the other thing. Like it's, it's hard to know how software is going to be used. And also, the minute you start using it, you start to think about other ways you can extend the functionality. It's, it, you can't say that these are requirements and that are the requirements and this, that's it. Like you discover, the users discover how they want to use it and, and they see more, more needs. So it's, it, it keeps going, I think. So that, that's another reason why it's bad to, to separate into um, projects instead of products, I think. We'll be back with our interview with Henrik in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. Yada, 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 Apple Podcasts, rate, review, you know the drill. Anyhow, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on the podcast? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. Also, please consider sharing a link amongst your friends on social media. That would be really helpful. And now let's get back to our interview with Henrik Warren. Out of curiosity, what sort of, do you work in a product type environment or are you working in client services or a combination of that? No, I work in a product product environment. Uh, I've pretty much always worked in with products that are long-lived. I mean, mostly the companies I work for, the main product has been software one way or the other. So it's more natural. So I, I am aware that there are cases where maybe you just want to do something a little bit for, for some company. It's not their main thing and they need something done. But it, it's, I still think it's hard to get something just done and then it just works and it's fine. Like usually there are needs to, to fix it and change it and extend it. So it's a lot of like unforeseen uh, needs for even like upgrading because we have, we'll have clients contact us that are like, hey, our web hosting platform like Heroku is no longer going to support this thing because we haven't updated it in five years. And you're like, oh, well, you, you know, you're going to have to talk. And like, oh, we didn't know that was like, going to be a thing. We just haven't needed any new functionality. And they're like, well, you need to upgrade things to keep it supported there. And they're like, why? It just works. What's the problem? Um, and they're like, oh, no, like are these unforeseen ex- expenses down the road. It's hard not to talk to people when they want to build something because they think they have this idea. And they're like, well, do you know what the long-term cost of this thing that you're going to push out that's going to make it really convenient right now? But if you're not regularly investing into it, then it's going to degrade into a state where you're going to have to spend a bunch of money later on to, to fix, you know, get it back up to date again. And then it's a, it's a challenge to, hard for me in those conversations to be like, I'm sorry that the developer you, that did this for you didn't really explain the life cycle of like a software project like this. Yeah, that's the thing. And, and I mean, the way... The way software can kind of rot is like two ways. Either the code gets bad when you change things, but also it could be like just a perfect piece of software, but the environment around it 
inevitably changes. And so you have to adapt it to that. I mean, security patching is one thing, but like you say, if, if a hosting provider changes something or it's not going to support something, it, and it's beyond your control, you, you, they can promise that they will never change it and then they'll change it. So you, you have to do these things too. So they, uh, that's unfortunately how it is. And it's it can be hard if you're not uh, into uh, software development to understand that, that that's what you can run into. It's true. One of the in your blog post you had quoted Michael Hartoon, I think that's the pronunciation. Hardware eventually fails, software eventually works. And I chuckled when I when I read that. I'm like, it's but it's just, it's so true. Yes, yes. I, I like that. I mean I, I kind of like to add a little caveat to that, that if you allow bug fixing as well to the software. Uh, and if if you just if you keep using it, it's not going to wear out. It's just going to get better and better. The more bugs you fix, so ev- eventually it's going to be really good. Whereas hardware, yeah, eventually fails. But I I really like that quote too. So when you think about working with older code bases, you recall any like major hurdles that you had to kind of climb over? I don't know if I have any good stories to tell because I mean, often. You can still work with it, even if it's not so well as well structured as it could be. So you can still figure it out. You can still use it, and eventually you kind of learn how it's done. How if you spend enough time in it, it becomes you get used to it too. So there's less incentive to change because you understand how it works. But I I don't have any examples that I can use, other than I think that it has to be done bit by bit because it kind of rots bit by bit, uh, one change at a time. So you need to constantly be vigilant and and refactoring when you see that that it should be changed but it's hard i mean i i i don't do that all the time even though i know i i should do it so it 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 is difficult another one of the topics i was looking forward to speaking with you about is working on bugs and i mean you're strongly opinionated that developers should be working on support tickets for some portion of their time, can you? Why do you feel so strongly about that? Like, and you mentioned earlier about some people think that, like, oh, working on new features or new, you know, mapping out the future of the architecture might be the thing that people get to graduate to. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a lot of people that think that way. I don't necessarily think that way, but I want to hear your take on this. Yeah, there. I mean, there are many things, many reasons. I think, but I think, like, if you say you want to graduate to something like some architecture or something, I think. If you don't see what didn't work with the previous software, how are you going to do a good job? Like you need to have an understanding for what kind of things break and how bugs typically manifest themselves. If you work on bugs, you get a much better understanding of how the whole system works because you see you see how the users use it, which maybe in ways that you never intended them to use in that way, but but they still do. And in general, I think a bug, any bug you fix will teach you something because it's some sort of misunderstanding or something you miss to do. So, so there are many things that you can learn from, from fixing bugs. And I think it benefits uh, all developers to do that. So yeah, those are the main things. Uh, and personally, I, I like solving bugs. I think it's like a little mystery. So uh, every time I look at a bug, it's like sometimes they're just baffling. You know, how can this possibly happen? And then eventually you find you figure it out, and it's it's a nice feeling when you work it out. And 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 I so I, I and I don't think you get to skip that by saying I just developed new features. Somebody else can fix the bugs. It's interesting. The uh, I think 
I like to fix things, I like to prove things more than I like to create new things. And I think the the terminology we hear maybe more often now is like menders versus makers, right? I'm I enjoy mending things, and I I think that I appreciate that kind of like labeling of that type of work. And but I, I understand that you sh- you know people should be switching back and forth between that stuff on a, on a somewhat regular basis. So I I agree with that, but I also think that I'm a little biased that I know that I'm like. And part of this might be because I feel like I've worked on things like new features that didn't end up getting used that much. And I'd be like, well, that was, that was, that's great. But I don't, you know, like it was like an idea. Cool. But when you're fixing something, you're usually addressing something that is going to be used and it immediately hopefully impacts and improves the situation for the person that encountered it or the people that are, you know, encountering that. And I get like the dopamine hit of like, yes, I solved something. Exactly. And it's much faster than the, than developing a new feature because it'll take a while. And like you say, maybe it doesn't get adopted and used. But for the bug fixes, it can be like an hour, you can be fixed and pushed out. And then you usually the users are happy. So one of the few quick feedback cycles that we can get, I think sometimes as software developers, whereas you build a new feature, micro, depending on what your team's workflow is for shipping things to production, it could take, you know, days, weeks months to actually end up in front of real people, you know, using it. And then, and then you forget why you built that in the first place. It's just an interest, It's interesting. So I always prefer that side of it too, because it's just like, it's, it's a much quicker fix. And it's like a get in and get out type of thing. And I'm like, what tools do I have to work with this? And, and you start to pick up things. Do you, do you feel like when, as a, someone that does, you know, work on bugs, do you find that there's you find it's easy to train other people or teach people how you go about thinking about it? Because it's always been one of the most difficult things for me to pat. I wish I can take, like, it's just like pattern recognition. I'm like, I don't know what it is, but there's something that I'll spot. I'm like, this smells similar to something and it triggers a thing. But I'm like, if someone asked me to write a documentation on how to go through this specific thing, I'm like, I don't know how my brain works. No, yeah, that's that's hard. I, I think maybe the best way is basically just uh, fixing a lot of bugs, uh, th- then you get that. But uh, I think, first of all, I, something that I started like 20 years ago is anytime I come across a really tricky bug, I'll write something down about about the bug once it's fixed. So I'll write down how it uh, showed up, what I did to debug it, and what the fix was and what I should learn from it. Lessons learned, it's like one or two sentences. What should I learn from this? And this, I don't do this for every bug I fix. Like sometimes it's very obvious and you just have to fix it. But when there's anything that's tricky or or weird or something that made me go, aha, then I'll write notes about that. And so I've I've done that for a long time and I've, I've sometimes I go through them and look through the notes and and mostly kind of just the lessons learned. And so I, I can give you an example of a bug that I thought that made me go aha when I found it. It was uh, when I worked in telecom and you send messages and you use this uh, TLV encoding, tag length value. I think it's used in a lot of other cases too. So you have a message and you see the tag says what kind it is and how many bytes and then the payload of that uh, part of the message. And so we discovered a bug where the length byte was set to zero and our code didn't check for that. So we were just, so it, and the tag was like just uh, uh, random garbage. So we say, oh, this tag, we don't recognize it. We should just skip it. We try to skip zero bytes. And then so we end up in the same place. And so we got in an infinite loop basically because we didn't check for zero. 
And we had lots of, well, we had checks that it wasn't too big. We weren't going outside of the buffer, but it just hit me, you know, oh, zero can be really bad here too. So that's a typical one where I would write down some notes about it. And writing it down, I think, really makes me remember it much better than than if I just kind of tried to make a mental note, kind of. Uh, oh, the other thing I was going to say is really tricky bugs. When I look at my notes too, the ones that were really, really tricky, I almost always ended up talking to a colleague and discussing it. And then I had like the aha moment. And not 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 just like that either of us came up with it, but in in our back and forth, we were like helping each other to come up with a solution. And it's so powerful. And that's one of the most common lessons learned I've written down is discuss it with, with a colleague. And they don't even have to know the, that part of the code. They can just, you know, ask good questions and, and be a sounding board, like the rubber duck even, like but uh, alive. Yeah. So, so yeah. So those are two, two really good things, I think, for, for getting better at it. Nice. I, when it comes to like writing it down, do you typically do that in a sp- place that's visible to your peers or is that primarily like you have your own note-taking thing or is it a bit of combination of both depending on the scenario? Nah, it's just basically a file that I call bugs.txt that I put stuff in and I just have like the five or six headings that I, that I copy from the top and then fill out. The, and I've um, we've talked about it, like often... I, I will tell the team I'm on if I if I find something really weird I'll just say you know what happened I had this bug and it turned out to be this so if it's if it's something worth sharing I'll 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 tell it when talking to people or or at the stand up or something but I haven't really shared the document but I did write a blog post trying to extract lessons from it so I guess that's my way of trying to share it yeah I always wonder sometimes if like if I'm gonna put anything like that somewhere if the, if anyone's ever going to read or if it's just adding more noise to the collective knowledge base of about the system yeah i but i think that the benefit is even if nobody reads it it's when you write it down it's it does something to you because sometimes i'm not even sure what exactly was the problem again and you have to think about it and and if you're going to put it down in sentences, it, it's, it really helps you clarify what exactly happened. And I think it helps you remember. So even if you never look at it again, I think it's still a, a benefit. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Do you feel like you have a history of bugs that you've encountered that were not reproducible and never seemed to pop up again, but you still were able to learn something from? I think 
there's there are very few that we never got to the bottom of sometimes it took a long time and sometimes we leave them on the back burner often i think you can write workarounds and you can have like extra things and and then you can add like extra logging and stuff to help you get more information but i i know one case it, it was for months it was a big problem we didn't understand how it happened but we managed to write you know enough code around it so that oh we double checked some things and made sure it didn't have any bad effects but but eventually we found out but uh i remember one case we never figured it out and i i didn't even know what happened with that but it's it's rare i think mostly we end up one way or the or another solving it you know a couple of other topics i that I like to talk with guests about. And one of them is we didn't really touch on it. We talked a little bit about software rot, and I suppose that does have a correlation to this. But do you do you talk about technical debt as technical debt, or do you use other... I, I think sometimes technical debt has come to mean just bad things in the code base, which I think is a bit of a shame. But on the other hand, often those bad things come about as a trade-off. You know, you want to do something quick and dirty because you don't even know sometimes if if this is going to work out. So there's there's no point in in doing too much. But the key is getting back to it uh, eventually. But I can't say that I use the term technical debt a lot, although I I see it. You know, it it it's around. You see it on Twitter and stuff. But I don't use it myself so much. I think more of you know code that needs to be fixed kind of and whatever the reason either it was poorly thought through or it was like a conscious decision to to try and uh, get something out fast does does your team have a cohesive way of organizing that type of work like how do you how do you organize that stuff in an effective way yeah i i worked where i worked like two places ago there we had they were scheduling in like basically uh technical debt tech issues that we had i forget the percentage but like 25 percent maybe for each sprint basically where we uh could um where we worked on stuff that weren't like new features but needed to be done but some a problem with that is that sometimes you know we would have a meeting half a day meeting and and figure out all the things that need to be done and you get a list that's a hundred items long like there's almost no end to things that should be fixed and there is really not enough time to do all these things like you have to do features as well and and new things so it's it's a balance and i think sometimes often it becomes really clear when you hit something that this needs to be fixed now and then it's rarely a problem i think to get the resources to do it because everybody can see we're hitting like a a limit to what we can do here but ideally you want to catch it a little bit before it becomes a crisis so and i think even if you don't do it explicitly you can sometimes have it implicitly that you i i think a lot of good product managers they recognize that this is how it works in software there are things that need to be done that isn't something that the, that shows up for the customer as a new feature and so even if you're not so explicit about it i think everywhere i've been it's gotten done as a certain percent of of uh, the work that needs to be done is that the same for things like bugs that pop up or is that typically separate from like the sprint it's also it's interesting because there's like a spectrum of bugs like i uh, an old colleague of mine he used to say there are never any like bug reports for, for the really bad ones or we're not i mean there are but i mean they get fixed so fast because like everybody you jump on it because if if the whole site is down like you you work on it till it's fixed basically so everybody knows that that so 
yes, you, you'll write the trouble report so you can follow up, but mostly it, it, it gets fixed right away. And then there's a whole range down to like little things that would be nice, but it's not so important. And I think I like to fix bugs. I think things should be right. It should work as intended, but there is diminishing returns for some of the things. Is it really worth doing? And sometimes it is, it's an economic decision whether it's worth fixing them or not. And so there's a whole spectrum in between, I think, how important they are, how critical they are. The thing I'm curious about is, do you often have an opportunity to work with like junior level developers? Uh, sometimes. I, I have worked on a, on a previous team with people that came straight from school or university, and it's been really nice to work with them. I think like pair programming or, or troubleshooting something together is really valuable. Also, like if you code review, like discussing the features with them. I, I, I think one thing I think it's a bit of a problem with uh, the ways uh, pull requests are done is that sometimes people don't talk before it's time to review it. And I think it's you need to talk before you start doing anything and see, am I on the right track? And, and is this a reasonable way to do it? And then... You, because if you do everything and then here's the PR and, and somebody said, well, that's the wrong way to do it. You've wasted so much time. So it's much better to discuss a little bit how it should be done first. But yeah, it's it's nice to, but I have a, can't say that I've worked that much with new developers. Do you recall what it was like early on in your career to have some mentors or were you kind of like left to figure it out? Well... One thing I, I do remember very clearly is before I started working, when I was still at university, I couldn't imagine what I would do through the days. I mean, I understood you program, but I, I didn't really know how is it to work? Like, what do you do? It was just a big mystery. So after I'd worked for a long time, I, I remembered this, how I didn't know what it was like. So I've actually volunteered to go to schools and talk about what you do as a developer. It, it's hard to convey what you do, but I, I think it's good to tell a little bit and try and give a little bit of a insight into what it means to be working as a software developer. So, and when I started working, it was nice to find the people that really knew the system because not everybody did. Often, actually, a lot of those people that well, I, I started working at Ericsson uh, doing telecom stuff, that was very divided, like with developers and testers and support people. But the people doing support were the ones that knew the system the best because they had the whole picture. When you were a developer, you just had a little piece to work on and you couldn't see how it fit in. Talking to either good testers or good um, uh, support people, they had this really good overview of how it all fits together. And finding these people, even finding people, developers that knew uh, their stuff is golden. But not not everybody, just because you've been there for a long time doesn't mean that you know the system really well. So I, I remember meeting or getting to know the ones that know a lot. That's really worth a lot. You can ask them questions. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about that. I always wonder in our environment, client services, we bring people in and developers, the junior developers, and we bring them in the projects. But then I know that other companies that have, they'll often kind of place developers maybe in their first jobs in a support environment so that they're helping debug things for customers and, and, and learning that. And I hadn't really thought about it. like, that's a, it is a really helpful way to get the more of a holistic view of things. 
Um, but I always think that they're always, but I also talk to a lot of those people and they're like, I can't wait to get to start working on new features. Like that's going to be what software programming is, is I'm going to get to build new features. And I'm like, well, you're probably going to spend a lot of time fixing bugs too there. Um, and that's the, uh, I mean, I think if it can be mixed would be really good, I think. So you can work a little bit and then, you know, then you have questions maybe that you can find out when you do the sport. But I think it's important to do. I I, I think we should consider it. Support is part of the software development process, I think. Like you need to be able to debug the system and you need to be able to fix bugs. So so that needs to be part of it. And it's not just like that's maintenance, but I'm doing development. It's kind of back to that blog post again and one day i'll graduate and get to just be the architect you know and then never have to do anything with bugs again yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. uh something for people to think about there well with that um i'm curious do you have a non-technical a non-software book that you find yourself recommending to people i i think i have to come up with a boring answer which is uh, I think I think many people say this but uh, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie I I think it's really good because a lot of software development is actually interacting with people colleagues like other developers but also like stakeholders uh, customers and this helps in all those encounters so I, I think it's a really good one and I I like it too because this is kind of like condensed wisdom from like he's he spent like years giving courses and having people talk about their experience so he has like so many examples to draw from and he can see the big trends so it's really uh well researched as well as i think so uh i like it for that reason as well nice i'll definitely include links to that in the show notes and you're right it has definitely been referenced by a number of the guests on this show i read it and i I, I agree that it's a good one um, for sure. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development online? Yes, I have a blog at uh, henrikwarn.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, Henrik Warren is my handle there. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely include links for everybody in the show notes for folks. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Henrik. Thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop with us. Yes, thanks. It's been really great, really interesting conversation. 